You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer powered. Listener supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, October 19th, 2021. Later in the program, we have a few minutes with the mayor, a weekly segment where we pose questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on community issues. Assistant News Director Noel Herhusky Schneider has more in the bottom half of tonight's program. Also coming up in the next half hour, some great news for those who commute to Indiana. Also coming up in the next half hour, some great news for those who commute to Indianapolis. Indiana Department of Transportation announced that Interstate 69 in Martinsville should reopen by the end of the year. WFHB News interviewed project spokesperson Natalie Garrett about what motorists can expect in the coming months. And now, your daily headlines. About nine months ago, a five-mile section of State Road 37 in Martinsville closed to the public in order to upgrade to interstate status. However, motorists can expect the Martinsville portion of the I-69 finish line project to open soon, says spokesperson Natalie Garrett. I-69 through Martinsville is expected to open to traffic by the end of 2021. At this point, we don't have a specific date that we're announcing as far as opening to traffic. A lot of the work that is in progress now as we move towards the end of the closure, paving and things like that are highly weather dependent. This time of year, weather is a little bit unpredictable, especially with temperatures, but we're hoping to narrow that down here in the next few weeks. So hopefully we can share a more specific timeline, you know, here The I-69 finish line project stretches from Martinsville to Indianapolis, and it will include more than 26 miles of new interstate, highway, and dozens of new or replaced bridges. Garrett explains the project at large and how the Martinsville portion fits into the broader construction. Overall, the I-69 finish line project, um, it's the sixth and final section I-69 between Evansville and Indianapolis. Um, in the state of Indiana. The actual finish line portion um, begins in Martinsville and ends in Indianapolis. It will connect with the south side of 465 there in Marion County. Specifically in Martinsville, a section, about a five-mile section of State Road 37 was closed at the end of late 2020, early 2021, to construct the new interstate lanes, ramps, and bridges in Martinsville, that's from about State Road 39 up to just north of State Road 44. The full closure was done to allow crews to work quicker um, and allow them to work away from traffic. So they're not working under traffic, therefore they can work more quickly and safer. And there's also work going on north of Martinsville. Basically the entire corridor from Martinsville up towards I-465 is currently under construction. She also touched on some major changes motorists can expect to see once the interstate opens. Well, access to the highway in future interstate will be different than it was prior to the closure. Access points will be limited to the entrance and exit ramps. 
along what is currently State Road 37, future I-69, you know, just like other interstates in, in Indiana. And that will increase safety. And this section of I-69, you know, once it's open, travel times will be improved, you know, once everything is complete. But I think the main thing will be access points to get on and off State Road 37, I-69. As we move into the fall, an inch closer to the winter months, construction becomes dependent on weather conditions. However, Garrett maintains that road construction remains steady. She says crews are on schedule for the expected unveiling of the interstate by the end of the year. Construction is continuing on schedule um, along the corridor. As I said earlier, paving is one of the main operations going on, at least in the Martinsville area. Earlier this year, there were a number of bridges that were opened either over I-69 or along what will be I-69. Bridge work is something that can typically take place in the winter months. You know, winters in Indiana can be unpredictable, you know, sometimes super cold, sometimes mild, sometimes a little bit of both. We never know, you know, so we're hoping for good weather as we finish up this construction season and we can get things open to traffic. Looking ahead, Garrett says that construction crews will continue to work on the highway even after the road opens to the public. Work will continue in the Martinsville area through mid-2022. So, you know, just because end of the year hits, that doesn't mean, you know, our contractor is going to pack up and leave the Martinsville area. Some work will continue on some of the entrance and exit ramps, local access roads, a lot of it will be work alongside the main line, not necessarily on the main line travel lanes. And then work will also continue north of Martinsville. We'll just continue continue working north, working on the various interchanges, overpasses, slowly opening things to traffic once they're completed as we move towards Marion County. For more information on project updates and frequently asked questions, you can visit i69finishline.com. Up next, we have a few minutes with the mayor, a weekly segment where we pose questions to Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on community issues. Assistant News Director Noelle Herhusky-Schneider talked to the mayor about the 2022 city budget and the actions taken by the city for people experiencing homelessness in the winter. All that and more in today's edition of A Few Minutes with the Mayor. Welcome back to Minutes with the Mayor, where we ask your questions and questions we have about what's going on around town. Are you ready to start? Yep, let's go. Well, at the last city council meeting, the council really pushed back against the budget and said they would still like to negotiate before they would pass it. And I was wondering 
if you have decided on any changes that you will be making yet or any compromises that you see in the future? Well, yeah, the budget is a is a long process, and, and as you said, uh, a week or so ago, the, the council deferred action on the budget wanting to talk some more, and we're I've got an open door. I continue to, and we've had some conversations, and, and I think it's probably good to put it in the context that of a $170 million budget, we're debating a very small uh, slice of it here at the at the 11th hour, and there's some different views, and we continue to share perspectives, and I, you know, it's all a regular process. Sometimes people get a little heated, sometimes it gets a little political, sometimes there's some uh, some maneuvering going on, but uh, I'm confident we'll get a good budget uh, passed and um, help the, the community move forward. These are really challenging times, and budgets are big and complex, and nobody loves every part of every budget. I, I don't love every part of this budget, uh, but I think on the whole, it's a really good budget, and we're going to keep talking about how to how to move forward with it. Seems like the police budget and the climate action plans were two of the issues that were the hot subjects. What does the council need to see in order to pass those? Well, and let's just note that, as you mentioned, those are two specifics, that different groups of council members Mm -hmm. have raised different issues. And, of course, there are nine separate council members. And um, in some ways, these are kind of inside baseball, like the the police issue is, is exactly how is a certain $5,000 getting paid to police officers. Is it in a retention bonus or is it in their base pay? And for a lot of people, that doesn't seem like a big difference. And, and for police officers, it's receiving the same amount of money. But I understand there's there are some nuances. And similarly, for the sustainability position, it's it's not what are we doing about sustainability? What kind of outcomes are we seeing in terms of new solar and, you know, lower reliance on single family, single car uh, trips, et cetera? It's focused on who has a position inside city government and where is it? And I, I tend to think that um, most of our community really wants to know, well, are we safer? Are we getting the services that we need from the police department for public safety? And Crime rates are going down generally. We certainly have issues with guns, which I've talked about a lot, but overall crime rates are going down. That's a good thing. And I think generally people want to know, are we making progress on sustainability? And we're making great progress. We have a lot more to do. But in some ways, this is maybe a little bit of inside baseball that gets uh, real intense at the end, but we'll uh, we'll get through it and Mm -hmm. uh, focus on how to deliver public safety and how how to assure we're making progress on climate change. Yeah, just knowing that every the basics. I think Councilmember Susan Sandberg said that she'd prefer if the budget went back to the basics rather than fund amenities. What items? Oh, oh I, yeah. I mean, I would just say, look, I, one person's basics are another person's amenities, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm. Uh, I think we all agree the government wants to do the basics well. We want to provide public safety and sanitation and great parks, but. You know, uh, do we? How do people think about responding to climate change? I mean, I think that's very important. How do people think about making sure our community is more inclusive to people as we go forward with better housing and more options for that? That's really important too, as part of what the city does. So, it, some of that may be just kind of um, different ways to talk politics about different different focuses or different emphases that people have, but mm-hmm. we all agree on most of what the budget's trying to do. Mm-hmm. That That's a good point. I think 
because I I also think that you know the climate action plan is incredibly important, and I think uh, Council Member Mount Flaherty pointed out that the budget as proposed wouldn't support what it needs to be successful for implementing it, and it is it must be some inside baseball, and it's my first time really paying attention to it this closely, and I'm and I think you know it's really hard, and everything's important, and I think. Somebody the other day asked, like, what's something that while you're watching these videos, what's something that you notice that everybody agrees on? And I think the only thing that I really could say was sidewalks. <laughs> well, it's yeah. I mean, I guess by the nature of the of the business, um, we focus on where there's disagreement. But again, out of 170 million dollars, there's there's really strong support for the vast majority of what we're doing with expanding our bus transit system and adding more electric buses and improving our affordable housing, uh, the housing authority and the water utility and, you know, the the basic works of our public works department of expanding uh, sidewalks, as you said. There's there's many, many, many investments that are built into the budget that, that we all agree on. And then there's a few areas that have come down to it after six months of negotiating and talking, and we've made a lot of progress and a lot of common movement uh, where I've listened and they've listened and we've found common ground. There's a couple areas where there's still some disagreements. And, you know, that's, I I mean, I wouldn't expect that you're going to end up with a budget where everybody's going to say, that's exactly what I want. That's that's not realistic for a democratic process. But I think we've had a really good process. I think we have a really good budget. And ultimately, the council, uh, and this is kind of inside baseball too, but under Indiana law, the council, they can't, they don't get to amend the budget and move money from here to there or add it, whatever. They can only cut the budget or reject it altogether or pass it. And I'm confident that they will they will decide that the better path for the city is to pass a very good budget, even if it's not exactly what one of them wants or two of them or several of them or, or me. I mean, it's a compromise. But I think it's a really good budget to help our community move forward in a in an aggressive and very positive way. So this is just me being curious. After that budget meeting, will the climate action director position be added? Well, that's a topic I've I've talked about with uh, particular council members, some of whom support it, some of whom don't. So it's always important to remember that, that just because some people are advocating for it, there are others who may not be saying anything who don't really support it. I've been a huge um advocate for the city advancing uh, our work toward climate justice, climate progress uh, aggressively. And we we have a climate action plan uh, just just uh, brought forward last uh, this year, earlier this year, that sets forth very detailed and aggressive uh, goals that I think are incredibly important. We always are going to be talking about how do we do more, how do we get results, but uh, there's actually a climate action plan report that's going to be in front of council uh, tomorrow night, Wednesday night, and uh, we'll be we'll be given an update on how we're doing, and that's going to be a regular thing because this is with us forever. And um, I, I have a different view of how to advance that than some in terms of a exactly what kind of positions inside city government, and we're going to continue to talk about it, but. Um, you know, my job is to try to produce the results that we want, achieve the plan, and, and, and the council and, and we work together to, you know, reduce single auto t- 
strips to increase uh, solar production, to um, increase local food production, to increase economic opportunity for people, and all the issues of resilience and sustainability and lower cost of uh, electricity for water, and uh, we're saving a bunch of electricity at the water plant. So, I did hear, I think, at a different, I think it was a different meeting, maybe the maybe utilities, Vic Kelson mentioned that the tariff would be kind of supplemented with the money that they've gotten from the solar power. Yeah, you know, um, many people don't know the single biggest electric user in our county is is the city of Bloomington Utilities because it takes a lot of energy to treat and distribute and pump and clean water. Um, and we're doing a lot, investing many millions of dollars to improve that system, including with major energy efficiency with solar, but also more efficient aeration pumps, for example, and systems that mean we can save, we think, 10 to 15 percent uh, in the short run on that uh, in terms of energy demand um, and, and increase more of it from renewables. So these are all steps that are really important. And I also think it's really important for people to know that government itself, however, is just a little piece of the climate problem. We have, of course, great needs for the wider community, the all the households and all the businesses and institutions and colleges and universities and mm-hmm. other other enterprises all to be working together and so that's one of the one of the little differences is i'm i'm kind of trying to focus more on getting the whole community to move forward on this stuff and not just have it be the city we certainly want to be a leader but we need to have the whole community rowing in the same direction on this mm-hmm. i agree i think i know iu has been you know, uh, uh, it's a big player here, and they've said like, "Hey, yeah, like we're gonna be carbon neutral soon." And it's just, yeah, how do you hold an institution accountable? It's easier for um, citizens to hold their government accountable because we have processes and things for that. But I feel like it's harder to hold an institution accountable. Yeah, yeah, but it's all it, if we don't all be working in the same direction, then we're really not going to get close mm-hmm. to the progress that we need. So um, that's really important to me is to try to build that collaborative and and uh, community-wide approach to this. It's important. And I, I really, I really, I think, I do think we're on the right track as a, as a, as a nation. I think a lot of people are concerned. And I think Bloomington as a community is definitely... You know, if I might just add, because it's it's worth noting that it's important for people to know that the federal government's role is so important. The America Rescue Act Plan, ARPA, uh, I'm sorry, America Rescue Plan Act, ARPA, and the CARES Act that was done to help with COVID relief has been such a difference to help our budget be much better. If we didn't have that federal support coming in, it, it would be a very difficult situation. So I do I do want people to, to hear that, that that action by Congress and President Biden to support the American Rescue Plan Act and, and sending that money straight to cities and counties has been incredibly important and helpful to help us invest in climate infrastructure and climate investments and public safety and inclusion and all those things that mm-hmm. are part of our budget. I'm hoping that more of Biden's climate action plans goes through, but I was listening on the radio today because I worked at a radio station and heard that, you know, it's obviously facing some opposition like we are here in Bloomington. So It's a complicated mm-hmm. process, but we'll uh, hopefully take a uh, some steps forward, even if it's not quite as far as fast as some of us want. But it's important, really important to keep the progress going. A little bit of me is just 
like, yeah, but it's 2022 budget and uh, 2050 is the predicted, uh, Councilmember Volan um, pointed out by 2050, we'll have like 49 days, like over like 95 degrees or in the summer. And that is just exigence on that one, you know? I, I look, I agree. I, I've tried to keep talking about how this decade of the 2020s is critically important to make progress on, on climate, on sustainability. Uh, we're making it, but we're going to have to talk every year. We, how are we doing? And that's what the report will start mm-hmm. checking in on tomorrow. It's also really important on inclusion that we continue to help make sure this city works for people from all walks of life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, this decade's a really important one. And we're, we're, you're right. This is a, you know, this is, budget number number two for for the decade so here we go and then i have one other kind of topic i was reading an article that perry township is suing the city of bloomington for records about people who have passed away this winter while experiencing homelessness i'm curious what you in retrospect think the city could have done differently in seminary park and what your plans are for this upcoming winter well um uh, it was a rough winter in many ways, and we certainly uh, work hard with many, many partners to try to make sure people have a safe place to sleep and to be. And sometimes it's a tragedy when somebody does not go inside during the winter, and we, we lost um, uh, individuals uh, to the weather uh, through exposure or other things. And we're going to continue to work closely with everybody in the community to try to make sure there's a, a place for everybody to sleep, a safe place. And uh, we've actually set up from the city, encouraged, and now are a full partner with the Housing Insecurity Group, which is a big gathering of folks to, to help address these issues. And anytime we lose a, a resident, uh, it's a tragedy, and we, we want to do everything we can to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I attended a vigil put on by Beacon a few weeks ago to pay respect to the named and the unnamed people who passed away. Yes. Um, and yeah, it was very Our- eye-opening to me been to many of those. Mm-hmm. Those are powerful events. Mm-hmm. I live really close to Seminary Square and it was kind of, and I know this is kind of old news. I was just, I'm just, I was kind of confused why they were forcing people out of the park at 10 p.m., like after dark. So I, I really like to hear that you made some changes for this winter. Well, that's a, that's a long, that's a long question. Mm-hmm. It, it's, um, something we work very hard with, again, our partners. The city doesn't typically provide those services directly, but we often fund them on behalf of the community. And we want to make sure everybody's safe uh, and, and protected um, anytime, particularly in the winter. It's, it's not safe to live outdoors in the winter, in, a, in an Indiana winter. And, and you know, we, we wanted to make sure people got to emergency shelter beds and there were those available and we hope they're available this winter too. There's a lot of planning going on now mm-hmm. to help make sure nobody has to go through that. Now there are other issues with city parks. It's it's under city ordinance illegal to sleep in a city park overnight. They're closed overnight. So we work with folks to try to make sure they get to a better place, a safe place, and we'll continue to do that. Um, and expand options for for folks, uh, whether it's a shelter, emergency shelter, or better yet, to have a long-term house for everybody who, who needs a place to live. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Those those were some tough questions. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that this budget compromise keeps going well and ends up working out for the best for the whole community. Tune in on October 27th. I think it'll. I hope it'll go forward that night, and uh, we'll be able to move forward. Thanks a bunch. I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. 
if you have any questions, please send us an email at wfhb.org or give us a call. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. In case you might have missed yesterday's local news, we talked to social work students who protested the city of Bloomington's National Conference on Police Social Work at the Monroe County Convention Center. We revisit that report from WFHB's Cade Young and Abe Shapiro. On Monday, the Bloomington Police Department hosted the National Conference on Police Social Work at the Monroe Convention Center. According to a city press release, the conference provides an opportunity for national leaders in both law enforcement and social work to share best practices in embedding social workers into police departments. In response, a small group of social work students formed to protest the conference. Grace Mitchell and Jackie Cope, organizers of the Indiana Abolitionist Social Workers, said that social work and policing should not be combined. Well, it's, it's absolutely offensive that the solution to, you know, state violence is to have social workers walk alongside state agents. We have our own history of social control that we need to reckon with, and pairing us up with the police is not going to do that, and it's antithetical to our values of social justice. The Indiana Abolitionist Social Workers wrote a letter of dissent to all deans, associate deans, and directors of Indiana University Schools of Social Work. Mitchell describes the points outlined in the letter. Well, we started our letter talking about the, you know, a brief, a brief statement on the inception and function of the police. And yes, I think all of this, uh, all of this supports the cultural myth that we have, that community policing is a real thing, that, um, that social problems should be policing problems when the function of the police has been and has, has been since the beginning to, uh, to control the population, to maintain inequalities, and it, those same inequalities that the police manage in our society are those same inequalities that social workers need to be resisting against and need to be actively like creating alternative strategies to address. Putting us side by side with the police, these agents of the state, when you know um, their very existence speaks to structural violence, really violates community trust. It violates like the aspirational values of our profession, of our field. Cope and Mitchell said that the values of social work do not match the values of law enforcement. The police were born out of slave catchers in the South and union busters in the North. We're not aligning ourselves with that, um, and we shouldn't. Social work has its own history of policing communities as well, and that's something that we also need to reckon with. And pairing us up with the police isn't going to solve that and isn't going to solve police violence. Ending police will end police violence. There's no objective evidence that social worker and police collaboration um, mitigates the harm of policing. All of that evidence comes from police self-reports. There uh, is no objective data on citizen outcomes. And again, when you have an institution that um, is fundamentally unjust, aligning yourself with that institution and calling it harm reduction is just crazy to me. <laughs> Cope says that collaboration between law enforcement and social work is not a new phenomenon.
Social workers have worked with police in the past um, and are call them police social workers as the name of this conference. So this isn't actually very new. Um, there is a history of um, social work complicity in, with police. Mitchell says that there are alternative solutions that our society can explore in order to address the root of the issue at hand. We can imagine better worlds. Like, again, and I've, I've said this before, too, there aren't only two options. People think that our options are to do nothing and sit on the sidelines or to walk hand in hand with the cops. Those are not the only two options. There are alternative structures, alternative organizations, alternative ways of being in the world. And we have to imagine a world beyond the world that we currently live in in order to address these problems at their root. Mitchell and Cope said to reach out and support your local Black Lives Matter organization to learn more about reallocating funds from the police department to other city departments. For WFHB, I'm Cade Young. And I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Abe Shapiro and Cade Young in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Noel Herhusky Schneider. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Benedict Jones. And I'm Todd Wicks. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. You can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. And now, stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a venture into our solar system and beyond. Coming up next on WFHB. And that's all.